Welcome to Poems for Company. I'm your host, Brian Dillon. Writing roughly 170 years ago, Walt Whitman claimed he could live with animals because they lacked so many of the weaknesses found in humans. Animals, Whitman says, don't whine, weep, or covet material possessions. Do other poets agree? Today's episode is titled, Some Horses, Some Oxen. We will begin our amble through some excellent poems with three very different views of horses. All of these poems tell us as much about the speaker as they do about the horses. First published in 1855, Walt Whitman's lengthy Song of Myself opens with this announcement. I celebrate myself and sing myself and what I assume you shall assume, for every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. In this poem of 52 sections, Whitman would like us to accept that he speaks for all of us, even in those sections where he sounds as though he'd like to swallow the world, absorb it all, and determine what is most useful for himself. Yes, he operates with an incredibly inflated ego, but he wants us to come along with him. That's part of the joy in reading Whitman. In section 32 of Song of Myself, Whitman matches his inflated ego against that of a stallion. But first, he praises horses and other animals for their detachment from concerns that trouble humans. This is part of section 32 from Walt Whitman's Song of Myself. I think I could turn and live with animals. They are so placid and self-contained. I stand and look at them long and long. They do not sweat and whine about their condition. They do not lie awake in the dark and weep for their sins. They do not make me sick discussing their duty to God. Not one is dissatisfied. Not one is demented with the mania of owning things. Not one kneels to another, nor to his kind that lived thousands of years ago. Not one is respectable or unhappy over the whole earth. A gigantic beauty of a stallion, fresh and responsive to my caresses, head high in the forehead, wide between the ears, limbs glossy and supple, tail dusting the ground, eyes full of sparkling wickedness, ears finely cut, flexibly moving. His nostrils dilate as my heels embrace him, his well-built limbs tremble with pleasure as we race around and return. I but use you a minute, 
Then I resign you, stallion. Why do I need your paces when I myself outgallop them? Even as I stand or sit, passing faster than you. That's a portion of section, section 32 from Walt Whitman's long poem, Song of Myself. No complaints, no guilt, no discussing their duty to a divine power, no kneeling to anybody or any divine power. Whitman's speaker believes both he and his reader could learn from these animals. Curiously, Whitman's speaker rides the stallion, briefly at least, though he doesn't convince us he's really a horseman. In fact, he closes this section by claiming his own thought process allows him to achieve some superiority over the stallion, as the final lines indicate. I but use you a minute, then I resign you, stallion. Why do I need your paces when I myself outgallop them, even as I stand or sit passing faster than you? Whitman wants to get the measure of himself by contrasting his sense of self against that of the stallion. Though this passage highlights what animals avoid doing, feeling guilt and kneeling to a higher power, for example, Whitman does not try to think like the stallion. Our next two horse poems depict speakers who do imagine what the horses think and value. Maxine Cuman titles her poem Jack, after the gelding the speaker once owned and about whom she feels some regret and guilt. The speaker implies she's in her advanced years, just like the two horses she currently cares for. The last two of our lives, as the poem says. Here's the setup for this poem. Alert to both the summer's end and her own mortality, she recalls a winter decades earlier when she minded seven horses, though her barn only offered six stalls. In retrospect, this memorable winter provokes the speaker's guilt. This is Maxine Cuman's poem, Jack. How pleasant the yellow butter melting on white kernels, the meniscus of red wine that coats the insides of our goblets where we sit with sturdy friends as old as we are after shucking the garden's last silver queen and setting husks and stalks aside for the horses the last two of our lives, still noble to look upon. Our first foal, now a bossy mare of 28, which calibrates to 84 in people years. And my chestnut gelding, not exactly a youngster at 22. 
every year, the end of summer, lazy and golden, invites grief and regret. Suddenly, it's 1980. Winter buffets us. Winds strike like cruelty out of Dickens. Somehow, we have seven horses for six stalls. One of them, a big-nosed roan gelding, calm as a president's portrait, lives in the rectangle that leads to the stalls. We call it the motel lobby. Wise old campaigner, he dunks his hay in the water bucket to soften it, then visits the others who hang their heads over their Dutch doors. Sometimes he sprawls out flat to nap in his commodious quarters. That spring, in the bustle of grooming and riding and shoeing, I remember I let him go to a neighbor I thought was a friend. And the following fall, she sold him down the river. I meant to, but never did go looking for him, to buy him back. And now my old guilt is flooding this twilight table. My guilt is ghosting the candles that pale us to skeletons, the ones we must all become in an as yet unspecified order. Oh, Jack, tethered in what rough stall alone did you remember that one good winter? That's Maxine Cuman's poem, Jack. This speaker does not ride the horses, at least not in this poem. She pours a very full glass of red wine to go along with the corn she's just shucked, and she sits and contemplates her last two horses, one age 84, the other 66, when calibrated in human terms. Then the speaker's mind transports her over time to the winter of 1980, a winter as cruel as we find in a novel by Charles Dickens, when her calm horse, Jack, lives inside the barn, but not in a stall. He enjoys an expanded range of motion in what she calls the motel lobby of the barn. Jack visits the other six horses who hang their heads over their Dutch doors. While this memory provokes the speaker's guilt, she hopes Jack recalled it fondly, that Jack somehow knew his position was privileged, however temporary it was. I'm going to reread the final ten lines from Maxine Cuman's poem. That spring, in the bustle of grooming and riding and shoeing, I remember I let him go to a neighbor I thought was a friend, and the following fall she sold him down the river. I meant to, but never did go looking for him, to buy him back, 
and now my old guilt is flooding this twilight table my guilt is ghosting the candles that pale us to skeletons the ones we must all become in an as yet unspecified order oh jack tethered in what rough stall alone did you remember that one good winter again that's from maxine cumin's poem jack knowing she had more horses than stalls the speaker let jack go to a neighbor she thought was a friend and this neighbor sold him down the river that may sound like a cliche this neighbor betrayed the speaker's friendship and betrayed jack but the phrase carries much weight in the nineteenth century to sell someone down the river referred to a slave sold by a plantation owner and transported down the Mississippi or, or Ohio rivers. Separated from his family, sent further south, the slave would be forced to work without any mercy. Rather than unload on this neighbor, which is the direction the poem could have gone, the speaker defines her own guilt. She knows no apology to Jack can ever be expressed. How strong are the memories of a horse? The poem closes with the hope that this big-nosed roan gelding was comforted with recollections of his one season of favored treatment in the crowded barn. Maxine Cumin's speaker projects onto Jack a wish that might comfort her, too. It's inevitable that we project our own emotions onto horses. Robert Wrigley does this subtly in his poem, Horse Heaven. Wrigley takes his time to set the scene. There are three paired creatures, two frogs in the horse trough, two cowbirds, and two horses the birds ride on. Then the speaker explains he controls the routine for distributing his treats to the horses. He's trained them to be patient to receive their sugar cubes. Let's listen to this carefully detailed poem. This is Robert Wrigley's poem, Horse Heaven. The pipe from the spring cistern, beloved by birds for its chill on hot summer days, spilled into a 200-gallon trough made of coopered two-inch thick wooden staves. And the trough was beloved by a pair of frogs, and two lazy geldings, or not lazy, but spoiled, infrequently ridden, fed every morning a quarter bucket each of oat mix and molasses, 
and every afternoon or evening an apple, carrot, or frozen slab of watermelon rind. And the horses themselves were beloved by cowbirds, perched on the withers or the croup from which they'd pluck up the occasional otherwise horse-annoying insect. And the cowbirds rode across the pasture to the trough that day, where I stood, as I often stood, with apples or sugar cubes in my pocket. They perched on the horses to the north of the trough, while I stood on the south, one bird each remaining, but having, at the sight of me, retreated almost to the dock, the uppermost trace of the tail. And we waited. Two horses, two birds, two frogs, having dived to the bottom, and a man with a pocket full of sugar cubes. They were beginning to understand the drill, the horses. I wanted them to drink first. They knew it, but they were impatient. First one, then the other, dipped his snout in the water and looked up at me, hopeful, ready. Though I waited, my arms folded over my chest. I wanted to see them drink, and soon they did, lapping, then plunging their muzzles deep below the surface to gulp, sometimes in the process, remembering how thirsty they must have been and taking in great draughts, pints or more, although eventually one stopped and lifted his head, then the other, and I produced two sugar cubes from my pocket, and arranging one on each palm, held them out, and their soft horse lips and cold tongues lifted the cubes into their mouths, and I heard a single crunch and watched as joy swept across their faces. When I produced two more, we repeated the process. Then we waited again. Because I did not walk away, they believed I still had more, as I did. But still, I waited. And the frogs swam in the trough, and the cowbirds hunted bugs near the docks. Then one by one, the horses both drank again, less than before, then lifted their heads and looked at me. Spoiled, yes, and probably lazy, too. Two geldings we owned for several years, having rescued them from a stable where they sometimes spent days at a time in their stalls, mouthing a meal of tasteless hay from a rick, a draft of murky water from a bucket on a hook, nothing like the spill of this cold and continually fresh spring. They had not died, but they understood they had gone to horse heaven. There was a seven-acre pasture of tall grass. Often at night there was a moon. 
There were apples and carrots and frozen watermelon rinds, and there was the man I was, waiting with them, waiting for them now, as they waited for and with me, and at last one of them nickered or shook a head. Those immemorial equine interrogatories. And I produced from my miraculous pocket two final cubes of sugar. They ate with a look of trembling ecstasy. After which I walked back to the house and sat on the porch and waited for them, as they always did on such days, and as they did that day, to run around the pasture once or twice in their joy, which was beloved by me. That's Robert Wrigley's poem, Horse Heaven. Wrigley's speaker notes the two horses he cares for previously were neglected. He rescued them from a stable where they sometimes spent days at a time in their stalls, mouthing a meal of tasteless hay from a rick, a draft of murky water from a bucket on a hook, nothing like the spill of this cold and continually fresh spring. With such a past, their simple joys in the present delight them. They had not died, but they understood they had gone to horse heaven. Not just because of the sugar cube treats, but the endless supply of cool, clean water on hot summer days, the oats and molasses mixed for breakfast, and later in the day, apples, carrots, frozen watermelon rinds. The speaker tunes into the horse's frequency. They first bite into the sugar cubes, and joy swept across their faces. The final cubes they ate with a look of trembling ecstasy. Cumin's speaker feels regret for giving away Jack, and tries to console herself with the memory of his one fine season in the motel lobby of her barn. Wrigley's speaker closes the poem with his admission of the pleasure spilling over from the horses to himself. I walked back to the house and sat on the porch and waited for them, as they always did on such days and as they did that day, to run around the pasture once or twice in their joy, which was beloved by me. We'll close today's episode with a poem set precisely at midnight on Christmas Eve. Thomas Hardy's poem, The Oxen, was published in the Times of London on Christmas Eve, 1915. The speaker recalls a childhood moment on a much earlier Christmas Eve, 
in the mid-19th century. As a boy, he sat with others and listened to an elder claim this. At that very moment, midnight on Christmas Eve, the oxen in their barn were kneeling. There's an old Christian folk tradition that Thomas Hardy's own mother had shared with him. Animals whose ancestors witnessed the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem kneel to commemorate the event every Christmas Eve at midnight. Now, as an older man, the speaker rejects such a fanciful belief. Yet, a part of him wishes it might be true. This is Thomas Hardy's poem, The Oxen. Christmas Eve and twelve of the clock. Now they are all on their knees, an elder said as we sat in a flock by the embers in hearthside ease. We pictured the meek, mild creatures where they dwelt in their strawy pen. Nor did it occur to one of us there to doubt they were kneeling then. So fair a fancy few would weave in these years. Yet I feel if someone said on Christmas Eve, Come, see the oxen kneel in the lonely barton by yonder coombe our childhood used to know, I should go with him in the gloom, hoping it might be so. Thomas Hardy's The Oxen Hardy relies on language used in his childhood in rural England. The lonely Barton refers to a stable or barn, and yonder coombe refers to a valley between steep hills. More to the point. By 1915, English farmers would be replacing their oxen with gas-powered tractors, adding yet another element of traditions becoming outmoded. The poem was published on the second Christmas Eve of the First World War. Knowing that context, there's an additional emotional power in the speaker's awareness that times have changed. A belief that the descendants of the oxen present by the manger at Jesus' birth actually kneel is, as the speaker admits, so fair a fancy few would weave in these years. But if someone told him that now in 1915 he could go to the stable to see the oxen kneel, he would go outside hoping it might be so. The speaker, I presume, would like to erase the violence of the First World War and return to a gentler, more peaceful time like that of his childhood. And isn't it curious that Hardy's poem plays off of the Whitman passage you heard at the beginning of this show? Whitman praised the stallion and other animals in this way. 
not one kneels to another, nor to his kind that lived thousands of years ago. That's a bold claim, especially when we think about religious rituals. I wonder if Whitman had any knowledge of the folk belief Thomas Hardy was told as a child. If you go to kmun.org, click on the podcast tab, and then click on Poems for Company, you will find more than a year's worth of episodes, as well as a list of every poem read on each show. I thank Philip Alberg for our theme music, and though the animals in your life may not know it's a holiday season, I hope they are all in good cheer.